0: Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Stay with me and we'll cover a few passages of Scripture that I hope will become precious to you. If they are not already, if they are already, then I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance of the good things they tell us and the good things we should be doing. Oh, this is a precious chapter. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. For it tells us... What takes place when an elect child of God runs into a preacher of the gospel? Men's lives change. You can read about this church in Acts chapter 17 and the trial of afflictions that faced Paul there and that afflicted these believers. But we're going to look at it for a slightly different reason. I want to start reading at verse 2 and I'm going to read down through verse 7. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. And Paul goes on to describe how that the evidence of their conversion spread throughout the Roman Empire so that wherever Paul went, the people in these various cities in the Roman Empire already knew about the conversion of the Thessalonians. It was so dramatic and wonderful. And that they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son Jesus from heaven who had delivered them from the wrath to come. The gospel changes men's lives when it meets up with a child of God. Amen. You know, the gospel doesn't change men's lives when it's a false gospel or it meets up with the unregenerate. Right. The gospel can't help an unregenerate man. The gospel can only help a man who's already regenerate. If he's not regenerate, which part of him is going to believe the gospel? The unregenerate part? The Bible says that is an impossibility. Enough. On, we, we already know that. We want to stay right here. We want verse 4 and the, the things that are said around it. Verse 4 tells us, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. The Apostle Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus knew that the Thessalonians were the elect of God, not because they had the gift of discernment of spirits, but because they saw the evidence in their lives. Right, right. We can know who is elect and who is not, By the character and conduct of those people. Just like Paul did. Paul is not invoking apostolic knowledge of secret mysteries of who's in the book of life. He is simply describing the evidence that we can all witness. And these Thessalonians proved that they were God's elect. Paul and his ministerial companions had vivid memories of what they had seen in the Thessalonians. Notice it says in verse 3, remembering without ceasing. We have this constant, vivid memory of what you Thessalonians were like. And what it showed them was that the Thessalonians were elect. So in answer to your question, how can I know I'm one of God's elect? You should want to dive into this chapter and milk its every clause. Because it says that there's evidence described here that can that will make you know whether you're elect or not. It will help you know whether someone else is elect or not. There's no fine line. Either you look like the Thessalonians or you don't. And wicked people never look like the Thessalonians. The wicked are not sitting around waiting for Jesus to come from heaven with their lives full of the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. The wicked do not take affliction in joy of the Holy Ghost. There is a huge chasm here. This is a description of the elect of God. Do you fit in this chapter? Verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith. The work of faith is doing a whole lot more than some little decision for Jesus. The work of faith is believing that God is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him so that it changes your life. That's Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Before Hebrews 11.6, we have Enoch. Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. How did he please God? By the work of faith. After Hebrews 11.6, we have Noah. How did Noah please God? By the work of faith. What was Noah's work of faith? It was building a decent-sized boat in his backyard when it had never rained upon earth. That is faith resulting in action. The Bible tells us Abraham was justified by works, not by faith. Faith was insufficient evidence that Abraham was on his way to heaven. The evidence was that Abraham took his beloved son Isaac, bound him, put him on an altar, and raised a knife to slay him. And that proved that Abraham was righteous. And James chapter 2 tells us that we can see that Abraham was justified by works. For the verses in Genesis 15 that tell us that Abraham believed God, and that was counted as evidence to him, was insufficient until he had proven that those words were true when he offered Isaac on the altar. That was the work of faith. What's the next work of faith in James chapter 2? that the Holy Spirit wants us to know about. Rahab the harlot. Abraham was Abraham was justified by works, right. by offering Isaac on an altar. Rahab the harlot was justified by lying to the city rulers of the city of Jericho to hide two spies that were of the nation of God. She feared God with with her house, and she had her and her whole house saved. And the Bible says... Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Faith that results in work. Do you believe God in such a way that it changes your life? You stop doing the things that God has told you not to do, and you start doing the things that God has told you to do because you believe God. You believe that He is, and you believe He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Not those that casually seek Him with casual worship and casual religion, but those that diligently seek Him. That's a work of faith. It's not bare belief. It's believing on God, but then doing something about it so that it affects your life. The work of faith. We can list all those works, but I don't want to take the time nor distract you from what the simple little expression is. The work of faith. Do you believe that there is a God and that He rewards diligent seekers in such a way that it changes your life? Are you willing to move from Mississippi to Greenville in order to be in a church that believes that and practices it? Are you willing to move from the Pacific Coast to be here? Are you willing to give up things to deny your flesh because you believe that God is and is a rewarder? That is the work of faith. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ so much? That he is the preeminent goal in your life, and he is the priority of your life. That you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the work of faith. Right. It could be developed and developed and developed until it included the whole Bible, because the Bible is a book of the works of faith. You read Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Abel, offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. He would have known that Cain was going to come upset because Abel wasn't offering what Cain was offering, but Abel went ahead and offered what God wanted offered And he lost his life for it. But it was because he did it by faith. By faith, Moses was not content being Pharaoh's grandson and having all the riches and pleasures of Egypt at his disposal. He left all of that to suffer affliction with the people of God because he was full of faith. Have you done anything by faith in your life? Do you continue loving your spouse when your spouse is unlovable? Do you train your children the Bible way because the Bible says to? And on and on we could go. The work of faith, we must go on. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. The labor of love is serving in deed and in truth and not in word only. The labor of love is paying. The labor of love is truly giving. It is not writing cards that say, I love you. Although that can be a part of it. The real labor of love is doing something that costs you either effort or finances To love those that love the Lord Jesus Christ. The labor of love. You know, if you want to show the labor of love, like I've already said in this assembly during our announcements, you can help Jonathan and Christina move on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, and that will be a labor of love. If you go to help them move because you know that they love Jesus Christ and you want to help anyone that loves Jesus Christ, then it's a labor of love. If the Lord puts somebody that doesn't love Jesus Christ in your path, like a wounded Jew and you are a good Samaritan, then you help him anyway. Because the Lord put him in your path. That's the labor of love. That's loving your neighbor as you should. It shows the character of an elect person. This is the evidence of election. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Have you ever done anything for anyone because they're a child of God? That's usually why we have to do it. Because God's put a whole bunch of us together that are pretty different. We irritate each other. We're from different parts of the country, different cultural backgrounds, different educational levels, different economic levels. And if it weren't for the binding influence of the Spirit of God and the binding purchase price of the blood of Christ, we'd have a hundred reasons to dislike each other. Amen. But because of those two things, we love each other. Amen. And it's called brotherly love. And it's based on the fact that our love is in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the labor of love. It's love that works. It's love that pays. It's love that does indeed in truth, not just saying, yeah, I love the brethren. That's not good enough for an evidence of election. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope. Patience of hope. Patience is the cheerful enduring of difficulties and trials and tribulations and afflictions. And these people were suffering affliction. It tells us that in verse 6 where it says, Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. That's patience of hope. Because the Thessalonians had such an eye to heaven, they did not mind what was happening to them on the earthly level or in the worldly sphere. They had already turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. That was their hope. The Apostle Paul wrote more about the second coming of Jesus Christ to the church at Thessalonica than all other New Testament epistles combined. These people loved the second coming of Jesus Christ and it sustained them. It was their hope that led them to patience and the patience is cheerful enduring of difficulties. When you have troubles in your life, are you able to cheerfully endure them because you know that God has something better for you? Right. David would put it this way. I had fainted, I would have fainted, unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And David also had a hope beyond the land of the living, that is in heaven. This is the evidence of an elect person right here. Are you elect? The, quest, the better question is, do you fit into First Thessalonians chapter 1? Does faith lead you to change your life? Do you look different from the world because of your faith? Do you labor to love the brethren? Are you cheerful in enduring difficulties because of your hope that is in Christ? Do you do with joy because of the influence of the Holy Spirit? Are you waiting for His Son from heaven? If you are doing those things, there's no question about it. God has made such a change in your life that you are doing things that natural men and wicked men never do. You're elect. Knowing, brethren beloved, you're election of God. And who loved them? God loved them. Brethren beloved. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13 will tell us, and we will see it, brethren beloved of the Lord. Right. You're elect. Simple. Have you ever done anything for anyone because... They were a baptized believer in Jesus Christ. And though you had a hundred differences with them, you did it because they were a believer in Christ. That's a labor of love based on faith in Jesus Christ. The wicked never do that. The devils never do that. The devils believe. The wicked believe. But they don't, it doesn't change their life like the work of faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope. Now the reason I went all over that is to comfort those that need the comfort and I went over it to remind you that don't need the comfort so that if anyone ever asks you how can I know I'm one of God's elect you know right where to go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's beautiful. One sentence. Verses 2 through 4. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We started out this morning with 1 John 5.13 that said, That John wrote to believers so that they could know that they had eternal life. So we know that that was a a key part of John's writings that the Holy Spirit inspired. And then we have Paul showing us that that was important to him in 1 Thessalonians 1. And now it's Peter. And we already showed you this morning that in verses 12 through 15, it's describing Peter's commitment to these things. Even if they already knew them, he was going to remind them about these things. We read 10 and 11, and let me read them again. Second Peter 1.10 Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore the rather... Brethren, give diligence. You put forth some effort, and you can make your calling and election sure. And the word rather is there to compare it to some pitiful people in verse 9. Because verse 9 says, He that lacketh these things, that is, doesn't have the eight things in his life that we're about to look at, that man is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his, own sin, his old sins. This is a, this is a child of God purged from his sins who is living a carnal existence. And do you know that you can never prove that you are one of them? That's right. If you try to prove that you're a carnal Christian like Lot or Samson, I'll prove to you from a Bible that you're a reprobate. Amen. Because on what basis will you know that you're a carnal Christian? When the Bible tells me that someone's a carnal Christian, I accept it. If you try to tell me that, the very spirit of a man that would ever want to claim that shows me that his damnation is just. Right. But we've got a group of them here in 2 Peter 1, 9. He that is black these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He can't see heaven. Heaven changed the Thessalonians, didn't it, in First Thessalonians 1. So he's blind, he can't see the hope of glory that changes people's lives. The Bible says, he that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. He's blind, he can't see afar off, and he's forgotten what took place in the past, and that was that Jesus Christ purged him from his sins. Right. He's a miserable, fruitless Christian. And only God knows that He's a child of God with His name in the book of life. No one else would be able to tell that. Because by a fruitless life like this, you look like a reprobate. You say, well, he might have believed for two years, and then he started living this way. Well, then we would go to John chapter 8 and find out that only if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples. Let's keep backing up. It says in verse 8, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, in the last part of verse 10 it said, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. So we have things in verse 10. We have a group of people in verse 9 that are not doing these things. And in verse 8, we're told, For if these things abound in you. Now we want to know what things they are because whatever things they are you can make your calling and election sure. You can guarantee heaven by giving diligence how much diligence? All diligence, verse 5 is going to tell us to 8 things. Let's go to verse 5. These people that want to talk about faith only faith only is worthless. Faith only is what a devil has. James chapter 2. Faith only is empty. Faith only is vain. Faith only is dead. It was called the work of faith. Love indeed, I mean, love in in word does not work. As we're going to learn in 1 John. It was the labor of love. It's love that works. It's love that results in you doing something for someone else that's a measure of a child of God. Faith is given to us as a gift... By the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ, verse 1 of this chapter, it's given to us as a gift. God puts faith and implants it in our new man by the blessing of His Spirit when we are born again. We then take that faith and we believe the message that God gives us in the gospel, but we begin acting upon it immediately. And we are to add to that faith a number of things. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, when the jailer asked Paul, Men and brother, what must I do to be saved? The answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But within three hours, he was baptized. Because he was immediately putting that faith to work, because it's the work of faith that shows a child of God and an elect of God. Now notice here, verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence... That's how important this is. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things... He's just listed the things... If these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is a pitiful excuse of a Christian. And then verse 10, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. So it's these eight things that prove your election. You can guarantee heaven by giving all diligence to have these things in your life. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly by your servant angels in heaven, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you believe that there is a God and that He is a rewarder of diligent seekers? Do you believe that? Then add to your faith some virtue. Do you know what, okay, what is virtue? That's a good question. Let's answer it very simply. It's what the virtuous woman was full of. She did what was right and good and noble and pleasing to God with her life. And so we add to our faith virtue. Virtue is godliness. But it's already in the list, so we don't want to call it godliness. We want to think of some other synonyms for it. Virtue is what is right, good, noble. Pure, holy, that's virtue. Add to your faith a virtuous life. So if you believe that there's a God and you are living a virtuous life and when you fail, you confess your failure as sin to God and ask Him to help you go on, you're right here in Second Peter chapter 1. These are things we want to give all diligence to. Faith. Add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, Knowledge. Knowing and discerning the will of God for your life and keeping it. Having a knowledge of God and His ways, His Word gives it to us. We want to add that to our faith and to our virtue, so that we define how we ought to live by what God has said. Do you care about what God has said? Do you want the knowledge of God for your life over the knowledge of men? Do the first 40 chapters of Isaiah mean more to you than the 40 chapters of Rick Warren books? Because you want knowledge from God. You want to know His will. So you add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge. And to knowledge you add temperance. Or what we can define as self-discipline, self-rule, self-restraint or moderation in the use of all things. You are not given to any bodily excess. Any speech excess. But you rule yourself. You rule your speech. You rule your appetites. You rule your habits. You rule your time. Because you're temperate. Are you temperate to use things moderately so that you please God? That's number four. Do you ever practice any of those things in order to please God? Add to your faith virtue and then knowledge, then temperance, then to temperance, patience. Patience is cheerfully enduring hardship because your trust is in God who is going to get you through it and be with you on the other side. To patience, godliness. That is acting like God where and when you can and doing all those things that God Himself has asked of you. That's godliness. We're to add that to our patience. And to godliness, we're to add brotherly kindness. That is the affection and desire that we have for our brothers and sisters that are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how is it different from number eight, which is charity? Charity is helping those in need. It's a little different. Brotherly kindness is the affection by which we honor and esteem our brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ more important than ourselves. Charity is the willingness to dip into your wallet and pull out and help those who do not have. Do you remember? I quote it so often, I'm sure you should. Do you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says where Paul Paul was to warn Paul was telling Timothy to warn the rich that the rich should not trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, that giveth us richly all things to enjoy, and that they should be ready to distribute, and willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves, a good foundation against the time to come. When when your wallet is greased, and you love to pull it, you pull it as fast as Wild Bill Hickok, ever pulled his Pearl Handled 45. You pull it, because you're willing to help those in need. That's charity. But it's got to be legitimate Bible need. If it's because a man's lazy or a man's foolish, he doesn't deserve any charity. The Bible's got a standard of charity throughout. And we only supply food, clothing, shelter, and necessary medical help. That's all the Bible justifies. That's charity. And, and Paul told Timothy... The rich can lay up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Now, they aren't going to buy their way into heaven. But it's the evidence of eternal life. And they can lay hold of eternal life by giving to help the poor. Because it's charity, one of the eight things that if you do, you shall never fall. Do you love giving to help someone else? A labor of love. This all ties together. This is the the character of Jesus Christ. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ did not come to get served. Jesus Christ came to serve others. And if you have that spirit, you will be in heaven. You have a good foundation against the time to come. Every time you help someone, every time you pull a few dollars out to help another brother, and the more liberally you do it, you can count it as two bricks. But if it's a few bucks, you can count it as one brick in the foundation not of buying eternal life, but of having a good foundation to lay hold of eternal life. Good evidence you're making your calling and election sure. Enough on that passage. If you if you're asked, "How do I know I'm God's elect?" or if your soul is tempted, "How do I know I'm God's elect?" Go to First Thessalonians one. Go to Second Peter chapter one. If you haven't been doing these things as as fully and as fruitfully as you should have, then confess that to God and get started. And do you know why I'm preaching today? If you haven't been doing it, get started today. These are the things if you do, you'll never fall. Wicked men cannot do these things. When they do nice things, it's not because they added it to their faith. It's because they added it to their disbelief. They added it to their paganism. They added it to their selfishness. They added it to their self-righteousness. They added it to get a promotion on the job. There was high pressure on us to give to the United Way when I worked at the bank in Michigan. There was pressure on us to give to UNICEF. I never gave to either. I didn't really need to tell you that. I already outgave anyone in that office just because I was a base Christian, because a basic Christian already does that. They were doing it because they had to to please one another. There was a list kept. So guess why they're on the list? And they'd be bitching and moaning about it when they did do it. Listen, do you do it with cheer in your heart? Do you cheerfully do it? Is your wallet greased? That's what I'm asking. Does it fly out? And you want to scatter to help those that need something? It's charity. The Bible talks about it. Do you know what Jesus is going to remember? When he separates all men and the sheep run his right hand and the goats run his left? He's going to say to the sheep, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because when I was poor, you visited me. When I was in the hospital, you visited me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And the righteous are going to say, when did we ever do anything like that? Because, see, the righteous aren't putting a whole lot of meritorious stock in what they've done. And Jesus is going to answer them. In that ye did it to the least of these my brethren. My brethren. My brethren. Right. We do not watch television and get moved by starving children in Africa. Those nations have had starving children for 6,000 years. He said, In that ye have done it to the least of these my brethren. And if I sound cold, harsh, and hard, I'm sorry, but read the Bible. Right. The, rebel, the, the Bible does not teach us to be bleeding heart liberals and socialists to try to help nations that have been starving to death for 6,000 years because they've chosen to live on a piece of sand. Jesus never went and visited them. Jesus never mailed off a money order to any of those nations in Africa that had starving children. Jesus never went to the Philistines and looked for orphanages to take care of children. Jesus had a bag. Judas carried it. He was a thief. And do you know what the bag was for? For the poor among the believing saints of Israel. That's a whole other subject, and if you want every verse in the Bible on that subject, then go look up our document about the tsunami that struck three or four years ago, where we pull together all the passages and show the priority of godly charity. Second Peter chapter 1, there it is. If you do these things, you shall never fall. If we give diligence to do these things today and tomorrow, and until we are on our deathbed, you and all of us, are going to know that you are the elect of God and are going to heaven as soon as it goes flatline. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the crown of the road. We know that salvation is of the Lord, and it's only of the Lord, and it's all of the Lord. But we have the highest motive that the Bible could ever give to us on how to have that sovereignty of God exercised on our behalf, how to know it, how to make our calling and election sure, right. is by doing these things. When you look at the full gospel of Jesus Christ, there is the highest motive to live a holy, giving, serving, loving, righteous, virtuous, godly life. And yet God gets all the glory because He saved us in spite of ourselves. And He is the one that gave us the willingness to do these things. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Right. And the more we do of that, then we know He worked something in us that came from His eternal counsel. That's election. He worked it in us, and we're to work our salvation out. That is Philippians two twelve and 13. We can work it out by doing these things. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I wish I, was a, I wish I was an entertaining speaker, but I, I, I don't. All I want to do is give you the Word of God, and I ask you right now to try to stay awake for a few more minutes, because I have a few more passages I want to give you until you are rock solid, that you can have boldness in the day of judgment. Those words don't even go together in my vocabulary. They shouldn't even be in the same dictionary. Boldness and the day of judgment, the day of judgment's horrifying. How can we be bold in the day of judgment? We've been to two passages that have told you. Right. If you do these things, ye shall never fall. But in the day of judgment, you shall have an abundant entrance ministered unto you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that today? Yes. No one can keep all those things perfectly. Whenever you fail, you confess it to God and go right on. But can, can anyone keep them in general and confess their failures when they don't keep them? Absolutely. And that's what a Christian does. Remember, we know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. David was a murderer. David had eternal life abiding in him. It's a murder that goes right on in his murder and doesn't repent and make restitution wherever he can for his wrongdoing. Repentance makes all the difference in the world. Repentance can clear murderers like it did David. Aggravated adultery, aggravated murder. It can kill anyone. Repentance makes all the difference. You know the Bible says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire? Ever told a lie? Jesus Christ died for it and if you repent of it, it's gone. It's gone legally because Jesus died for it. It's gone practically because you repented of it. You can read that verse and not fear it one bit. The world is full of liars who lie every day, don't have a bit of remorse about it. They love to lie. They love to hear lies. They love to tell lies. Colossians chapter 3, please. Verse 12. Colossians 3, 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God. What we're about to read in this sentence is something done by the elect of God and Paul is telling the Colossian Christians to do the same thing. Because... It's the evidence of the elect of God. It's what the elect of God do. Do you want to know if you're the elect of God? Then ask if you fit in these two verses. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and beloved of God from eternity, bowels of mercies. Brothers and sisters to whom I am speaking, put on bowels of mercies. Choose to have feelings for those that need help. Kindness. Humbleness of mind. Meekness. Long-suffering. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. That is the evidence of an elect person, because that's what the elect are to put on. They're gentle. They're meek. They're humble. They are helpful. They are kind. They have bowels. They have feelings. They get worked up to help someone else. They're generous. They forgive. They forbear. If a quarrel breaks out, they throw it. Who cares? Who cares? It doesn't matter. I'm going to forgive that person just like the Lord's forgiven me. They forbear and put up with all the offenses that we do toward one another. They never complain. They don't bitch and moan like I was describing earlier because these are the elect. They don't do that. There it is. Colossians 3. Because of the time, I'm not going to go back to verse 1 and work it up from verse 1 through 11. And I'm not going to go to verse 14 and work it down to verse 17. But all of it is a description of the true elect of God. And if you want to know whether you're elect, then read Colossians 1 through 17 and see if it describes you. Are there things you have put off in your life that are listed in verse 8? And now you also put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lying, and so forth. You put off those things, and then you put on new things. And you love to sing, as verse 16 describes. And you do everything in your life to the glory of God through Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father by Him. If you do those things, and you confess when you don't do them, you're going to be in heaven. Wicked men have never even tried the first step of these things. They've never had grace in their hearts to sing psalms to God. It's no fine line. You melancholies, I'm preaching for you. Don't you know that? I've got a bunch of them in here. It's called the M-curse. A melancholy thinks too much. They could save themselves by just turning it off. (laughs) Problem is, they can't. I full well know. (laughs) But do you know what the Bible wants us to do? Give thanks instead of thinking. You think too much. Well, I did this and I just don't know if the Lord's going to forgive me. I just could be part of those that are unfruitful and they've forgotten. No. Believe. Believe. Okay, I've got more. Second Thessalonians two. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Uh, William Culper was a melancholy. Oh, he was a melancholy. When locked away for one of his most severe depressions, he penned the words, or used the words, got the words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that blood, lose all their guilty stains. He was overwhelmed by guilt for his sins, but the Lord gave him one fantastic song, and we love to sing it. Second Thessalonians 2 puts it this way, verse 13, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. There is the election of God. Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And that is the necessary order. God must regenerate you by giving you a new holy nature through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. There is a salvation that God chose these people to from the very beginning. The salvation is from the lies of the man of sin. The man of sin in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 are the popes of Rome. They sit in the temple of God and claim to be God and expect to be worshipped as God. All of our fathers have believed that this was the man of sin. It's only until Hal Lindsey and a few other comic book writers came out in the last hundred years that anyone doubted that 2nd Thessalonians 2 was about the popes of Rome. This is salvation from the lies of the Church of Rome. She is the mother of abomination and harlots of the earth. There's one billion so-called Christians in the world that are deceived by the Church of Rome. Those who are not deceived by the Church of Rome... They're in verse 13, we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God has not sent you the strong delusion that you should believe a lie as He has sent them that are in verses 9 through 12. And so if you have heard the truth of the gospel and you believe it, that Mary is not the mother of God, have you ever thought that Mary was the mother of God? I hope not. Do you believe that the the communion wafer in a catholic church becomes the body blood soul and divinity of jesus christ do you believe that you need the pope of rome to help you to heaven do you believe that you should pray 10 hail marys to every one of our father you've been saved by the grace of god if you love the truth And God has not sent you delusion to believe such things? If you're not sitting around thumbing beads and using vain repetitions like the heathen, then God has saved you. You're elect. You believed the truth when it came to you with apostolic teaching from the Bible. 1 John 3. 1 John 3, I've given you four passages. You can pick your favorites as to how you would use them if someone asked you, or if when you're troubled, you want to remind yourself. We went to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We went to 2 Peter chapter 1. We went to Colossians chapter 3. We just left 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we're in 1 John. We started there this morning, and this is where we end. 1 John five thirteen. these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. But, if you had read the epistle of 1 John, you knew that there was a whole lot more in there than believing on the name of the Son of God. Because the epistle is filled with righteousness and love of the brethren. Let's go to 1 John 3. Look at verse 14. Do you want to know if you're elect? 1 John three fourteen. We know. Do you want to know that you're elect? We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. That isn't your biological brother. That doesn't count with God. Families can love each other all they want. It doesn't mean anything to the Lord. Do you love others because they are gods? Look at 1 John 5 if you want to see how it's worded. Everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Second half of 5, one. We are talking about the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to 3.14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Because a person has made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, been baptized, and is living an obedient life to Christ, that you know he's a Christian, you know he's an elective God, and you love that person because of that fact. Because you say blood is thicker than blood. The blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of family. This is a child of God. I love him. I will do what I can for him. I have bowels for him. When he's afflicted, I'm afflicted. When he's rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. The New Testament describes this over and over. It takes sermons to preach about the love of the brethren. Let brotherly love continue, Paul would say in Hebrews 13. It's the evidence. A devil can believe. A devil believes better than you will believe. The devil believes that God is and that he is a rewarder because the devil has witnessed that. The devils believe and tremble. But devils do not love. Love is a greater measure and proof of a child of God than faith. That's right. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Right. We know that we've passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Have you done anything for a brother or a sister? Because they are the Lord's. Even though you know, and I hope you don't even think about it because it's just not worth thinking about. That if it wasn't for the Lord, you wouldn't have anything in common with that person? Do you cheerfully do it? Is your wallet greased? Is your refrigerator door oiled? Jerry, is it true that Lou Nappy told you his refrigerator is your refrigerator? And you can come by his house anytime you want to, go into his refrigerator, and make anything you eat out of his refrigerator anytime you want to? That's love of the brethren. That's Lou Nappy, too. And you know that about him. Yep. Verse 19. There's a lot of good verses here. But let's go to verse 19. Uh, let's get 18. Let's get 18 so that you know what the Apostle has just written about. He's writing that it's not love in word, it's love in deed and truth. It's love in actually doing something. 1 John three eighteen. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's not just say we love the brethren because it's the labor of love, not the language of love. It's the labor of love, not the words of love. It's the cost of love, not the expressions of love. It's actually doing something. My little children, let us not let us not love in word, neither in tongue. Let's not talk about it, but in deed and truth. And hereby... We know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Do you know how you can assure your heart, you melancholies? Do you know how you can assure your heart before God that you are of the truth and are going to heaven? Because you don't love just in word, but you actually do things for brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ that need them. And you enjoy doing that. And even if it costs you, it's a pleasure to do it. It's a joy. This is the evidence. You know, I'm preaching so hard on love right now, I sound like one of these bleeding heart socialists, almost. But we are not using it as a means to heaven, nor are we using it as a means to improve society. We are preaching it because it's the evidence of a child of God. Right. Verse 20, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. You know who that's written for, don't you? The melancholies. Your heart's condemning you. You have loved the brethren and you have served them, but your heart, you have an overly sensitive heart and you think too much. So you think you might not be one of God's elect. If our heart condemn us, if your heart's condemning you, though you're living this way, God is greater than your heart and God knoweth all things. Do you want me to summarize that for you? He doesn't care what you think if you want to think the ridiculous thought that you're not one of God's elect, even though you are loving in deed and in truth, then just turn it over to the Lord. Because He's greater than your heart. Some of you melancholies know what I'm talking about. You cannot turn it off. And it's like a monster that's chasing you. Day and night it chases you with thoughts you wish you didn't have. You wish you could meet Him and take care of Him. You wish you could shut Him up. But when you can't do that, Then believe the promises of God. Just turn it over to the Lord because He's greater than your heart. Because this is what He says is the measure of election. Thank you, blessed God. He has saved melancholies like William Cowper from thinking such things. If you've ever done anything for a person because they're a child of God, you're going to be in heaven. And if our heart condemns us, I love that. He's greater than my heart. And He knows all things. He knows all things this way. The wicked can never do this. The wicked never do something nice, kind, loving, helpful, charitable for a person just because they're a follower of Jesus Christ. They may do something nice in order to get ahead in the job. They may do something nice in order to be able to borrow their lawn tractor when it's time to cut their grass. They may do something nice for all sorts of reasons, but not because they're a child of God. That makes all the difference in the world. And if your heart condemns you, turn it over to the Lord. He's greater than your heart. Look at the next verse. And beloved, if our heart condemn us not, if you don't have a melancholy heart that's doing that to you, then have we confidence toward God. And for all you melancholies, that's what? By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, I want you to grow to. I want you to grow through verse 20. Even little melancholies. I want you to grow through verse 20 and into verse 21 to where you can have confidence toward God. If you can get to the place where you believe what God has said in 1 John chapter 3, then you can have confidence toward God. You can know that you are of the truth. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. See, the ones in verse 20 aren't very confident toward God because their hearts are condemning them, but God is greater than their hearts. Are you? Am I making it simple enough to follow this? This is salvation on so many different fronts. This is salvation from that melancholy spirit that the devil uses to throw fiery dirt at your heart to keep you in despair, to keep you discouraged from not enjoying the full liberty of the sons of God, from not enjoying the full joy of the Holy Spirit, that you're a child of God. Listen, when we die, we're going to be dying together soon. If the Lord doesn't come, when we die, I I want us to be dying cheerfully and joyfully. I want us to be grinning in our sick beds. Even if the little oxygen hose does get in the way. Because we know this. And our hearts are not condemning us. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Love is not a condition. Love is not an instrument. Love is not the means. Love is the evidence of eternal life. If you love, you are already of God because you would never love without that love being worked into you by God and the operation of the Holy Spirit. Natural men, you know, what the, you know what Paul said that he was like before he was born again and what all natural men are like before they were born again? Living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But then the kindness of love and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Titus chapter 3. The wicked don't love one another for the sake of Jesus Christ. The brethren that are described here are not your family brothers. They're your brothers in the Lord, the family of God. How about verse 12? No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. The closest you're going to get to God on earth is watching another believer love another believer the way God loves them. Yep. Verse 16. Look at verse 15. We want to get verse 15. There's a neat little grammar lesson in it for you. 1 John four fifteen. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Now, if you never if you never paid attention in school, you might think that because confessing Jesus Christ is in the first half of the verse, and God dwelling in, in you is in the second half of the verse, then you must have to do the first half of the verse to get the second half of the verse. But if you paid attention, and you know your verb tenses, the first clause of that verse is in what tense? Future. 1 John 4, 15, Whosoever shall confess... That's a future tense verb. There's only one way to tell the order of verbs and actions in the English language, and it's by verb tenses. It's not by the order in a sentence. The order in a sentence is utterly worthless to the time order of the events. It's by verb tenses. Whosoever shall confess is future tense that Jesus is the Son of God. God dwelleth in Him. What tense is that? Present God is in a person before they ever confess. And we should know that from the rest of the Bible, but it's right there in 1 John 4, 15. So that believing that Jesus is the Son of God is not something you do to get God in you, it's something you do because God is in you, and it's the evidence of it. 16. And, in addition to faith, remember this epistle is faith, righteousness, and love of the brethren is the proof of eternal life. And, We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. That is the Christian religion. God is love and has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is love and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. When a person loves his enemies and loves the brethren and loves the way God describes and the way God loves himself, then that man has God dwelling in him, and that man is dwelling in God. Love is the great evidence of the presence of God in a person's life. Faith is not as great of an evidence, because the devils believe and tremble, and there are believers in hell. Believing the historical facts of Jesus are not enough. It's having a changed life by the power of the Spirit of God, such as described here. Now look at the next verse. First John four eighteen. Herein what? Herein. Where wherein? Herein. From verse sixteen we may come to this conclusion. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. What is that saying? God is love, and he that dwelleth in love is dwelling in God, and God is dwelling in him. We love the way God loves, and if, if there, there is perfect love. Your love is perfected when you are loving the way that God loves. And when you have perfect love in your life, you can have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. We are showing the character of God inside us by loving others the way He loves. Do you remember what it's, how it puts it in Matthew chapter 5? It says, It hath been said by them of old time that you should hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Because God sends His rain and His sunshine on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. Therefore, be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. How can you be perfect like God? By loving your enemies. Those people that hurt you personally, that offends you personally and individually, love them. Pray for them. Bless them. Do good to them. Then you'll be like your Father which is in heaven, and you'll be perfect, and you'll be the children of God. Not that you become the children of God by those actions, but you prove and show that you are. You manifest a nature coming out of you that's put there by God, who's taught you to love that way. Because ordinarily, people do not love their enemies. They despise their enemies, hate their enemies, and want to revenge themselves upon their enemies. But this is the religion of Jesus Christ. It is contrary to nature. We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Verse 16, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein, when we dwell in love... The the love of God. We're dwelling in that love. We are living that love. We think the way of that love. It is flowing out of us. We're submissive to it. Then we're dwelling in God, and God's dwelling in us. And herein is our love made perfect. When we exercise love like God is love. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. As God loves and shows His kindness... We show that just as benevolently as he does. And we can have boldness in the day of judgment. I've already said that those two expressions hardly go together on the same page. But they're actually in the same clause. We can have boldness in the day of judgment. And do you know how? It told us right here, it's not making a decision for Jesus. It's not even faith. It's not even righteousness. In this particular context, it's loving others the way that God loves them. And dwelling in love. We just live a life of loving service to the people of God. And you can have boldness in the day of judgment. Because you are showing the character of God himself. He has enemies on earth. That raise their fists against him. And yet he sends his sunshine and his rain on their gardens and upon them. Because he's benevolent and kind even to his enemies. That doesn't mean in the end he's not going to show them who God is. But that isn't our prerogative. And we get to show them that same kind of love. The ones that offend, they may raise their fists against us. But we love our enemies. And we pray for them that despitefully use us. And we do good to them. We show the love of God in us. That we're dwelling in God. He in us. We're dwelling in his love. And our love is being made perfect by being conformed to his kind of love. And that gives us boldness in the day of judgment because by nature there isn't a single wicked person that would ever do anything like that. And it's all done out of faith toward God and Jesus Christ because it says to add to your faith, brotherly kindness. And it says to add to your faith, charity. So these things are all done out of faith. And when you do them, you can know that you're the elect of God. You can be bold in the day of judgment, chapter 4. You can assure your heart before him, chapter 3. You can know your election. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You can make your calling and election sure. You can guarantee it. 2 Peter chapter 1. Do you know where you're going to go now? For yourself and for others. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Peter 1, Colossians 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and right here, 1 John 3 and 4. Pick your favorites. Go to them. Comfort yourself. And do you know how you really comfort yourself? After you read, decide which one you're the weakest in. Jump up, grab the telephone, and add that one to your faith. Do something about it. Giving all diligence. Wherever you're weak, grab that one and build it up a little bit in your life. Are you short on virtue? Then add it. Are you short on knowledge? Then get into the Word of God and know the will of God. Are you short on charity? Go do something for someone today. Pick someone that can't return the favor. Am I the elect of God? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for first of all saving us by your grace through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And then thank you for giving us such a lesson book that shows us how we can be sure of that salvation for ourselves. And Father, we're thankful that you have shown us the high road of truth that runs between the ditches of human responsibility where men think that it's something they do that gets to heaven and the ditch of fatalism that thinks that God saves without any responsibility or cooperation or addition or works or fruits on the part of men. Those two extremes. We want to be in the middle on the high road of truth as the Bible presents it to us. I've just shown you that there is the highest motive in the Bible for you to live a righteous life. Truth. But I've also shown you and taught you for many, many years that salvation is entirely by the grace of God. And, it, and the truth be told, if we ever do those things that are in any of those lists, that's by the grace of God as well. Right. Because without that grace, we wouldn't, couldn't do them. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.